You are listening to a Nears.org podcast. This podcast was originally recorded at the Nears Spring Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. Virtual registration is still available. Don't miss out. Go to Nears.org. This podcast is brought to you by Cowan, where we strive to outperform. Visit them at Cowan.com. Today, Jason Seidel sits down with Keith Creel, CEO of Canadian Pacific Railway, where they discuss all things Canadian Pacific, Kansas City Southern, and what's in store. Without further ado, take it away, Jason. Hey, everyone, and uh, welcome back uh, to our our next uh, uh, discussion. We are uh, very, very pleased and honored here at Nears uh, to have the CEO of Canadian Pacific, Keith Creel, on to discuss uh, his railroad as well as his railroad's uh, acquisition of the Kansas City Southern. Keith, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Always, always an, a pleasure, Jason. Thank you for the opportunity. Sure. So, you know, look, everyone's heard, obviously, unless they've been living uh, in a fallout shelter about the, uh, the transaction of the KCS. Could you remind everybody about the timetable about the uh, approval from the STB? Yeah, so um, let me back up a bit. So if I go back to, I guess it was the fourth quarter of last year, uh, the STB came out with a schedule for the timing that led us through each of the obviously very detailed steps of the process, getting to a yes or no decision uh, toward the end of this year, first part of next year. Uh, I don't see any reason that still is not uh, what should happen? Obviously, right now, as of late, uh, we're currently in a hold process, for the lack of a better term. The, the schedule was suspended a few weeks ago for the railroad to provide for CP to provide a bit more clarity around data that's tied to traffic densities from, from, the, um, from the traffic densities, obviously, that were submitted. Um, so we've done that. We provided our clarity. And at this, this point, obviously, it's up to the SDB to come back and let us know, hey, that's enough. And reinstate the uh, the clock for the lack of a better term, or if there's something else that we need to clarify, then obviously will. And I think the key thing here, you know, some people might say, does that concern you? I would say that it's not surprising. Uh, these are very complex discussions. When it gets to traffic density in this process, I tell you this, the STB is very thorough. Uh, they want to get this right. And I understand that. I've understand, understood that from the very beginning. Uh, and we certainly want to make sure that uh, all the positive aspects of this this transaction are, are clearly understood. So we're gonna take the time, we'll be patient. Uh, we think once that's clarified, that or anything else that might come to, uh, come to the table during this process, we'll work through that and nothing changes the very, very compelling justification and reason and need for this transaction. So with that said, uh, we think we'll get back on track soon. And I still think we get to a place where end of this year, first quarter of next year, uh, I anticipate a positive response from the STB and an ability to put these two smallest uh, class one railroads together to be still the smallest, but I think the most relevant in the industry. Yeah, well, it's, it's not surprising that the STB would be this thorough. It's not like you're trying to acquire a small branch line out there. So um, this is this is the biggest transaction we've seen in the last two decades in, in the rail space and, and, and arguably right now the most important uh, that's on the docket. Um, let's focus a little bit on um, sort of the KCS transaction and what it can mean for shippers in terms of service and new potential options for service. Yeah, I think the most uh, compelling um, thought that I'd share with the shipper is extended length of haul, single line service. We all understand 
the inefficiencies and the challenges associated to interchanges. Uh, so from an operating standpoint, and I tried to look at things operationally, given that's, that's sort of my wheelhouse, um, to be able to create quicker asset turns, more reliable service, I think that's compelling for a shipper, especially in times when perhaps capacity might be scarce and or reliable service scarce. So to be able to hold one railroad accountable uh, to connect to your markets, to your lanes, I think is extremely compelling. Uh, I think the ability to extend reach, you know, we have always been an origin rich network at CP, uh, but perhaps especially in the U.S. and the Texas Gulf markets, as well as Mexico, I would say destination four and, and vice versa, the KCS, although they had their own unique network strengths, uh, standalone, the ability to be able to reach into Chicago just didn't exist, to be able to to reach and connect single line service with some of our specifically Northeastern rail shippers simply did not exist. You were always exposed to handoffs and to interchanges. Uh, so again, new markets, new service, different reliability experience, one railroad held accountable, there's no finger pointing. And I think the other very unique piece to this that serves the public interest, both shippers as well as the public alike is the investment that this unlocks. The ability to take two underutilized networks that connect uniquely, no overlap in Kansas City, and spend monies, infrastructure monies, to be able to create additional capacity to not only serve today's market, but tomorrow's growth, again, I think is extremely compelling for the shipper. You, you talk about tomorrow's growth, Keith, and, and you know there's been a lot of talk in the past about sort of uh, onshoring, right, or nearshoring, if you will. Um, you know, one could argue, you know, given what's happened here in, in recent times, that that there's being even a, a finer uh, a point put on this and, and more and more people I think are looking at it. Do, do you think the KCS-CP combination actually can encourage more of that uh, for people going forward on the shipper side? Yeah, Jason, undoubtedly it does. Uh, and I, I could step into many different analysis. You know, we started in this transaction, uh, pursuing this transaction, uh, in all honesty and earnest thoughts, at least about it. Um, it's been in my mind for a long time. That's not, that's not new news to anyone. Uh, but what made sense then as we stepped into the pandemic uh, with the supply chains that were disturbed, uh, being able to de-risk supply chains became very real. Uh, all the political tensions that existed during the Trump administration, you know, between China, between other countries coming into uh, America, trying to control our own destiny, just accelerated. Uh, then you get into all the West Coast disruptions that we still are experiencing, and, and in a large part, it played a role in uh, some of the inflationary pressures we've all been facing. Um, this solution addresses all those issues with the capacity that unlocks, with the unique ports, access at Lazaro, uh, with the labor force in Mexico to take product that perhaps that is produced overseas and bring it back to North American soil for this continent to, to be able to take that again, that risk out of the supply chain to get from a rail connection, not an ocean connection, uh, from origin to destination, from manufacturing facility to the consumer markets between all three countries, I think is extremely unique. And then the last piece, obviously with the, uh, with the very, very tragic circumstances is the last month to six weeks with Ukraine and Russia, uh, you know, now it's not just a transnational North American issue, it's a global issue. Uh, so for countries like Canada, Mexico, and U.S., that we all enjoy the liberties we enjoy, that we fought hard to protect and to establish in a, in a democratic world, uh, to be able to take the resources, the resource 
rich nations that we have and, and provide that to other like-minded countries across the world through these ports that we serve, whether it's product going out or product coming in. Again, I think this, you know, seriously, in all honesty, it, it goes beyond what I ever envisioned relative to the need for this network and what this can enable through nearshoring as well as getting those resources uh, to Tidewater or again, back into uh, each of these three countries. Well, I definitely want to touch on that um, on the macro landscape uh, a, a little bit later here. I, I want to uh, sort of just stick to looking at the transaction. Can you talk about, you know, any area of need uh, in terms of CapEx uh, that you might foresee uh, once the combination is approved, as well as something that, you know, uh, Tony and I have talked about, Tony Hatch and I, for, for years here as we've done the Tony and Jason show, uh, talking about for technology uh, and more specifically customer facing products that help for the, the visibility through the rail supply chain and what CP is planning on that in the future. Okay, well, let's let's start with the capacity piece. So part of our plan that we submitted to the uh, to the SDB obviously is planning for that. So we've got two networks. Essentially, there's about three hundred million dollars worth of capital we're going to invest between the two. Uh, in simple terms, it's about 30 siding extensions, indoor new builds. Um, it's work in ties, rails, and ballast. It's implementing CTC, uh, where we might have dark territories. Uh, it's working even within KCS's plan, eventually uh, building soon, as soon as the permits are there, probably over the next three to five year time span, building a second bridge to go into Mexico. Uh, so the pinch points that are on the network, uh, we've got a plan for them. Uh, the, the growth that we see in the next I'd say three to five years, the network is gonna be equipped to handle it. Uh, and then above and beyond that, something I'm extremely excited about that, that predates the transaction, but this certainly accelerates the investment uh, is our investment in Chicago, in Bensonville. We all understand how critical Chicago is to North American rail transportation. When it works well, things have a chance of working well. When it's not working well, we all get impacted uh, in an adverse way directly or indirectly. So to have an ability that gets accelerated through this transaction to invest uh, probably in all honesty about the same amount of money, about $300 million in our physical footprint in Bensonville, which for those shippers that may not be aware, it's literally physically located next to O'Hare Airport, a very strategic location with full interstate systems on both sides of it. Uh, so it's gonna give us a footprint with this expansion that we're, uh, we've started uh, to effectively double our yard uh, to create a a world-class intermodal facility, as well as a switching facility, as well as an automotive compound to so truly serve uh, pretty much all tenants uh, of shippers' needs in the Chicagoland area. So the capacity, the capital is going to be there. The commitment is going to be there. We're building a network to handle the business so that it remains fluid. That's part of our model. It's all about fluidity. It's all about asset turns. If you bring on too much business, more business than your network can sustain, you, you ruin that that ratio, so to speak, or that formula that makes us work the way we work. So as an operating CEO, I'm very, very sensitive to that. And that's gonna be covered in the plan. And then the second piece, and this, this is the more customer facing, you know, the customer knows systemically when service isn't good over time. Uh, so the capacity is gonna address that issue, but what you deal with day in and day out is, you know, how easy is it to do business with Canadian Pacific? How easy is it to do business with KCS and ultimately with CPKC and technology obviously, uh, as, as rapid as it changed, can help address that challenge. That's something that at CP, part of our journey, and many of our customers that might 
be participating today that have experienced it. Uh, when I came to CP nine years ago, uh, you know, we couldn't run the railroad, railroad very well. The service experience uh, was not acceptable. Uh, and I'm sure that from, you know, customer facing tools, uh, as archaic as we were in service, just as archaic in our IT systems. Uh, we have insourced that, that was outsourced then, we control it now. We've been working with our customer advisory council that we established the first year I took over as the CEO to talk to the customers themselves. What do you need? What do you see? How can we help you do business more effectively, more efficiently for you and for us? And we've invested and we continue to do that. We're going to take that approach. Some of the stuff we're working on now, and I, I believe other railroads are doing this too. How can we track and trace shipments? How can, how can we be more UPS-like? Uh, we want to get the service offering also, but also those touch points with customers. How can we expand our automated? We, we do bots, you know, ro robotic automation with some of our routine processes. Uh, we were very, I think, uh, visionary in that and led, have led the industry in implementing that. We're going to continue to accelerate and leverage that as well. And we're spending a tremendous amount of time and effort, not only to make sure that day one, when we cut over, our systems are stable, uh, but also to make sure that we are setting the groundwork as we go forward. Once we get everything stabilized, once we have our service product being executed and we're together to take what I, I believe is going to be a quantum leap on the technology side. So I would encourage, uh, I would encourage the customers to continue to speak to us, let us know, let KCS, if that's who you're dealing with, consistently know and eventually CPKC and that same approach that we've taken at Canadian Pacific with our customer advisory councils. Uh, we're going to leverage it. We're going to expand it. We're going to grow it. Uh, and I think that's the best way you learn. The customers interact with all the railroads. Uh, they know best who's best in class in certain areas. So what I like to hear and what I've challenged my team to, to seek in, in the feedback they receive is, you know, who does the best when it comes to tracking and tracing cars? Who does the best and it comes to customer notification on when the car is going to get there, when the car is going to be in transit. What if it's delayed in transit? What's the recovery plan? You know, seek all that information. And at the end of the day, let's let CPKC, through our investments and our commitment, become best in class, not only in service, but also in our customer facing interfaces. So that's the vision. That's the commitment. We're putting the money in the capital. I think if you look at our submission, all in over the first year, year and a half, $160 million is committed uh, through IT spin to make sure we get this right. So we're putting our money where our mouth is. We're putting our hearts and our commitment and our, our credibility to this. And we're going to create a best in class service experience uh, with CPKC and these technologies that we develop and that we invest in. Well, Keith, you, you mentioned the, the need to make sure you continue to listen to shippers and encouraging the shippers. And I'll just remind all the shippers that are out there at the conference, you can send your questions to Keith uh, via the conference app. So hopefully we'll get to those uh, after my line of questioning. Uh, Keith, let's shift gears for a moment here. Uh, can we talk uh, a little bit about um, the Service Transportation Board and their recent hearings on reciprocal switching? Because Canada has had reciprocal switching for quite some time. Can you sort of let us know how and if that changed the Canadian rail market and what it meant for CP? Also, what are your views for reciprocal switching for the U.S.? Well, I mean, I, I've been railroading now, Jason, for 20 years in Canada and reciprocal switching has been there for 100 years plus. Uh, it's, it's been woven into the way 
the two railroads work and interact together in Canada. And it works. You know, it gives customers options. It gives us, quite frankly, it gives the railroads options to provide service solutions that otherwise we wouldn't be able to. Uh, but in simple terms, if I think about it again from an operating perspective, which I have to, it's the way I'm wired, uh, it's much less complex in Canada. You have two railroads, uh, the way it works in simple terms, it's as a crow flies at a, at a designated known interchange location. Uh, it's a 30 kilometer or 18 mile circumference. And if you can touch it, uh, the other railroad has access to it. So if you're not getting good rate experience or good service experience from railroad A, uh, and Railroad B can get, get to you through a reciprocal switch, then you have an opportunity to know what the rate is. And then obviously it's on the competing railroad to earn your business. Uh, so it works. Uh, but that said, it has its limitations. You know, some customers likely don't realize this. Uh, the interchanges are limited by the capacity uh, that exists in those interchanges. And in some locations, uh, quite frankly, some customers would love to bring a 100-car unit train, uh, so to speak, through a through a known CTA approved CPCN interchange location, but the reality is it physically will not handle it. Uh, so those complexities have to be uh, have to be thought out, have to be worked through. There's, you know, obviously you don't want to create unintended consequences. And, and that's the only area of caution that I would have for the US rail shipper. Uh, we've got to be careful what we do and we don't create more havoc and take away more capacity and do more service damage. Um, you know, through what we think is the answer uh, to some of our challenges and to some of our concerns. But all that said, we participated in the process. We're going to continue to participate. Uh, I believe that whatever the SDB comes to, it's going to be through a very thorough process. Obviously, uh, the commitment they made with the hearings, uh, through listening to both sides and weighing all the facts. And when, once all the facts are weighed, whatever the SDB decides, uh, we're going to compete that way. We're going to, we're going to make it work. Uh, we're going to make sure that we we have a voice in the process itself. But at the end of the day, the SDB is the regulator and what they come forward with. Um, it's going to be same rules for everyone as far as a competition standpoint and an execution standpoint. And again, I go back to my operating hat. As long as it's been carefully thought out and we don't create congestion and create an inability for the railroads to actually provide the service that the customer needs, uh, CP is going to do well with it. Okay, that's whatever it ultimately is, Jason. Yeah, well, let's, um, just in the interest of time, because I want to make sure that we give shippers the opportunity to ask questions here. Um, let's talk about ESG, because I think that's a, sort of a hot topic for the rail space, clearly a hot topic in the investment world. That's, as I mentioned earlier on stage, the greatest growth in terms of assets under management is flowing to ESG funds. Talk about CP's approach to ESG, and what role you think ESG will play for the future of railroads? Well, I tell you, um, I've always believed this, and we've always known this in the industry. We, we you know, represent a very unique, uh, fuel-efficient, cost-saving, synergy, environmentally-friendly uh, advantage over trucks because we just don't burn as much fuel moving a ton of freight as a truck does. Uh, so the value proposition has always been there, but to your point, as of late. Um, for the world, we're all changing and all matters more than it ever has. Not that it didn't before, but we're all very seized with uh, an environment where we want to do all we can to help sustain the way we enjoyed our lives today. And, and so it's important. Uh, but with that being said, at CP, again, a, a little unique. Um, you, you spoke about 
sort of the impetus to this, the investment world, um, what people expect, their expectations are changing. It's it CP, our largest shareholder, TCI, um, not a very bashful fund. They believe in things and they stand firm in what they believe in. Uh, Chris Hahn, who is the uh, leader of that fund, he and I obviously meet annually, uh, given the position he has in our company. And years ago, before this became as topical as it is, it was topical to him. Uh, and he set out some clear expectations. And, and he shared with me, Jason, not just we want you to be more environmentally friendly. He explained his thesis to me how it's not only good for the environment, it is good for business. You can coexist and you can do both. So you can satisfy the shareholder, you can satisfy all stakeholders. Uh, so we started on a path then uh, to leverage technology. We've made a lot of progress with our fuel efficiency. Uh, we're at best in class. I think CN might be best in class, but we've closed the gap dramatically and we're not very far behind at all. And we'll continue to leverage that. Uh, but some of the other very innovative, unique things we've done at CP that I'm extremely proud of that not only speaks to our commitment, but also speaks to our employees and speaks to our customers is how do we reduce our scope one, two, and three uh, emissions ourselves? How do we help customers uh, it's, you know, reduce their scope through our transportation solutions. So through investment, and there's a couple of key areas um, beyond what we'd already started to invest in, and this is over the last 24, 36 months, uh, you know, we made a commitment in Canada. We have a very unique corporate office that's in an old uh, back shop switching facility. We've got a big footprint. It's in an industrial complex. We've got a very large blacktop parking lot. Uh, we took a look at it. I guess it was, it was in the pandemic. We were talking about this, what more can we do? And I asked a simple question. I said, solar energy, we've got sun in Calgary, we've got footprint, what would it cost to create a solar farm in our corporate office? Uh, do we have enough space? And the answer is yes. And we have through investment, a nominal investment, uh, we opened our solar farm for the lack of a better term almost a year ago. And we today power our corporate office with solar power. So it's a zero emission uh, power opportunity for us that, you know, not just in words, but shows our commitment. And that resonates again with employees. And the other thing that we've done, and this happened during the pandemic as well, again, very innovative people within the company. We we're on a train trip, inspection trip, Jason, and my chief engineer said, Keith, I think we can create a hydrogen locomotive. We just need the capital to do it and the commitment to do it. And I said, well, tell me more. Uh, I'm all into technology if it's innovative and if we can scale it up and operationalize it. Uh, I don't want to be bleeding edge. I want to be leading edge. Help me understand. And he sat there and walked through the pieces to do that. And what became his vision uh, with our capital commitment over the last two years, we have a locomotive today uh, that actually is operating under its own power. We developed in Calgary at our corporate headquarters. Uh, that's actually a hybrid locomotive. It's not just hydrogen. It's a, it's a hybrid between battery and hydrogen that gives you range. And again, back to my operational head, when I think about a diesel locomotive, or, you know, customers perhaps don't get into the details, the way it works, uh, you've got to be able to refuel the locomotive, obviously. And we run across some very isolated locations in Canada. So you've got to get the range to get across the territory. So 1,200 miles is generally what my rule of thumb is. And we have our fuel stations spaced out about that sequence across our network. So I said, I've got to have a thousand mile range or I can't replace the diesel locomotive. It's not practical. Well, the, through this technology, combining the two, 
you can get that range because you have regenerative braking. So it allows the undulation of the terrain to recharge the battery. You have it supplemented with hydrogen fuel that you carry on the locomotive, you get the range. So at this point, the next step, uh, we have uh, qualified for some grants from the Alberta government. Uh, we're building two additional locomotives. Uh, one's gonna be an AC power locomotive, two are DC power locomotives. So for the next 12 to 24 months, you'll see when switching customers in Calgary, uh, that will happen this year toward the end of the year. We're building one for Edmonton. We're gonna build one and put one in Vancouver down on the South shore. Uh, so those communities will get to see this technology in action. We're gonna work out the bugs. And then the vision is to scale it up, to go to the OEMs, to partner with the one that shares that same vision that has the capacity uh, to, to produce locomotives on scale. And we think this can become a very compelling potential solution for this industry. So again, this is a space we're gonna to continue to invest in. Uh, there's a lot of energy around it, a lot of commitment to it. Uh, and we're gonna to continue to try to lead in this space for the industry. Well, Keith, that's a, that's actually really good to hear for the investment community just at large, not just for your largest shareholder, because I think it's going to be a plus uh, for the rail industry. You know, the, the solar farm is very interesting because, as you mentioned, you said, hey, we have sunlight in Calgary. Well, you know, you have, you know, you know, thousands upon thousands of miles of track in this network and especially going to even grow even more once the KCS comes uh, under your wing. Are there other opportunities around the network that you can create solar farms like this to reduce your footprint? Yeah, I believe there will be. Uh, we obviously haven't gotten to that part of the process yet, but I can tell you this, what I've learned that I'm extremely excited about. Uh, the KCS, contiguous to their, to their network, contiguous to their terminals, they have land acquisitions uh, that we purchased through this transaction. They've got about 6,000 acres of land to develop. So four or 500 acres in Houston, four or 500 acres in Dallas, two or 300 acres in Kansas City, um, acreage down in Laredo, acreage in Jackson, Mississippi, acreage in Shreveport, Louisiana. So like what we've done at CP uh, through the last three to five years that have allowed us to uniquely grow different than the industry, we've partnered with our customers to create supply chain solutions using that land. And part of this supply chain solution, part of an ESG solution, instead of just building a customer facility, to your point, Jason, what land presents an opportunity to create power, whether to be power our own needs and or to create power, solar power to sell commercially into the grid. There's, a, there's opportunities in both areas and it's part of the playbook. Uh, we haven't got to those chapters yet, uh, but rest assured we have a team within Canadian Pacific that's dedicated to this whole ESG space that are looking at those opportunities and that will be advocating with me for my support and our team support for the capital that it takes to convert them. I appreciate the color on that, Keith. I want to switch back to something that you touched on briefly. You, you talked about how now it's not just a North American landscape, but how it's going to be a global landscape that you think about. Can you talk a, a little bit about how CP uh, might be thinking differently about some of these end markets that you serve that can impact the global market going forward? Given some of the tragedies that we've seen with the Ukraine war, whether that whether that's the fertilizer market or whether that's ultimately the grain market, is there an opportunity here for CP? And 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 if so, are there any further investments that are needed? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, again because of our our diverse mix, our our book of business. You know, CP we originate or move seventy five percent of the potash that's moved in North America. Uh, we have the latest 
potash mine through K-plus-S uh, that was built solely served by Canadian Pacific. So we have an opportunity in the potash space to that point uh, as you know, Belarus and Russia, Canada's number one in the world when it comes to potash production, CP's number one moving it. <clears throat> Belarus and Russia, <clears throat> number two and number three. So as that product, again, back to my point earlier, um, is not sourced from those areas for all of these reasons by nations that don't care to be, be beholden to the likes of, of Mother Russia, uh, that compels opportunity for the Canadian product. Uh, so again, being a part of that solution, getting it to Tidewater, um, we're going to be able to help in that discussion. There have already been investments, quite a few investments, not only <clears throat> through modernizing the potash fleet, also through modernizing through technology, the way we inspect those potash cars that create additional synergies and efficiencies uh, through those train inspection portals that we uniquely at CP have a waiver from Transport Canada uh, using the technology to expedite or lessen the manual inspection, we're doing it more with the train portal inspection. And then also matched investments down at uh, in Portage, Oregon, or Portland, Oregon, I'm sorry, uh, that uh, where the actually Campitech ships to. UP has invested in their railroad. We partner with Kingsgate with UP. We're now running over the last year and a half uh, since during COVID, we've gone from 130 car train to 188 car train. So again, through that investment, we've created a lot more capacity than existed today or before yesterday. And then, in, of course, in Vancouver, uh, there's been substantial investment on the North Shore at Neptune, uh, where we run 200 car potash trains. Now you think about the other network, we serve 11 ports. And I go back to what KCS owns at Port Arthur, Texas. There's also additional lands that are at Tidewater that are there for development with customers. So these discussions evolve, whether it's potash, whether it's crude oil, you know, we all understand there's a move afoot to lessen our dependence upon fossil fuels, but the technology and the scale has to be developed. And I think we've all, you know, been made more and more aware of what those challenges are as of late. Uh, and given that today there's a need for more fossil fuels to lessen dependence upon, again, Russia, that provider that says the Canadian product and heavy crude that's available, perhaps in the future is gonna move more. And if you, again, unique to CP, this DRU that's been invested in that just opened up last year, the diluent removal unit that's at Hardesty, Saskatchewan that, you, that CP serves. Uh, today, it's running 50,000 barrels a day. That's the capacity. If you equate all that, it's, you know, it's about, uh, it's probably about 30, 40, 45 trains capacity with an ability to scale that up. Uh, when that product is needed more, it's a non-hazmat product because the diluent's taken out of the car. It's pure bitumen. You put it inside the rail car. Once it gets to destination, it has to be steamed up to be extracted again out of the rail car. If you can connect that supply chain, which we do, Hardesty through now Interline KCS to Port Arthur, Texas, um, that's an opportunity to scale that up and to be part of that supply chain solution to lessen North America, to lessen the U.S.'s dependence upon imported Russian oil. Uh, that, that's a perfect example, Jason. So again, many, many chances with our book of business uh, standalone that only get more exciting when we get the merger approved through the SDB to put these two networks together, create that investment, create the foundation for those customers to partner with CPKC to serve these needs that are just growing, that are now, to my point, not just 
North American scale, but at their world scale. Okay, Keith, lastly, um, before we turn it over for questions, can we um, get an update on sort of just overall how the railroad's running from a service perspective? I mean, I, I want to stay away from obviously any financial numbers since you're uh, in your quiet period here. Well, I would say, um, you know, we, we had a pretty tough service um, environment in January um, from a compare standpoint and from a reality standpoint, very, very challenging winter conditions which sort of, I'd say, tailed off a bit the first part of February. We started to get some momentum. And then, unfortunately, we had a, um, a work stoppage with a short strike that occurred week before last where we lost about two and a half days of not operating. But as we all know, we had to ramp down the railroad. We had to ramp the railroad back up. So it impacted the customers much more than two and a half days. But I'm very happy to say that over the last two weeks, uh, we did a lot of work when we were shut down to bounce back. We have resiliency in our network and our service levels. And I see this through the metrics, through our velocity. Uh, they've restored themselves. Uh, we're, we're caught up. We're not backlogged on any bulk movements. Um, overall, you know, it's not a perfect railroad yet, but we're making that transition. And this is all, to me, part of, I've been doing this quite a long time, especially in Canada, uh, the way you operate in winter weather when it's 40 below zero and you have to cut train links and do the kind of things and slow trains down uh, when it's cold to stay safe, all those things, once that's removed from you and you get into normal weather when you can run normal train links, uh, you have to shift people's minds too. So for the past two weeks, um, we led an initiative to shift from winter operation to normalize our PSR. Uh, I call it nine-month out-of-the-year operation, uh, and we're very focused on getting a scheduled railroad back in place that allows those asset turns and that reliability that the customer depends on and creates the capacity uh, that they need. So I think overall, uh, we're in a good place. We're getting stronger every day. Um, I see some of the challenges, obviously, that our shippers are dealing with in the network itself, some of the U.S. interchange challenges, some of the you know, COVID-related demand capacity hiring challenges, uh, we're not completely insulated from that, but our service experience and, and our day-to-day -day experience is not that, which I'm positive for. And when it comes to that, if you're a, a shipper that's handing off going west of the Mississippi to a Western Railroad or vice versa, we're going to continue to work closely with them uh, to try to do all we can to help them recover as soon as they can as well, because if they succeed, we succeed. So it's not a, you know, a be one all approach. This is a, a connected connected. And we're going to do all we can to help our partners, which often are our competitors, too, uh, to help them restore their service so we all can enjoy as an industry a better service outcome. All right. Well, Keith, that's a great update on the service side. Let's let's turn it over right now. Uh, give the shippers an opportunity to ask questions. And I'll remind everyone here at the nearest conference, you could use your app to ask questions. Uh, we do have, I do have one that came in that somebody just actually just slid it to me and we're getting slid in others here. So I'm going to, I'm going to just jump right in, Keith, here. I'm going to read these. How can you quantify uh, the qualitative difference in service between single line and interline? I think the best way to qualify it is in asset terms. Um, you know, I'll give you a case in point. Um, KCS, the way it operates today, a lot of the traffic, you know, we go into, into our joint agency yard in Kansas City. Um, we have a KCS block and we deliver cars and will we deliver them, whether it's 60, whether it's 70, whatever the number is, it's typically not going to be blocked for destination because we don't have the density. If you break down 60 or 70 cars to build 
five or six blocks. But in the future, the way I look at this, you have an opportunity with density to create that the, the opportunity the merger creates to do blocking upstream that allow you say, when we pull into Kansas City, perhaps we blocked two or three Mexico blocks. They add their two or three blocks to the train and the train moves to the terminal. It's in the terminal for six hours, eight hours, as opposed to coming in in an interchange cut, we deliver off to the KCS, they switch it out. You know, the car is gonna sit in the terminal in a best case, 24 to 36 hours. And that's if it's running well. And often case, if it's not, it's gonna be twice that. It could be three times that. So if your car loaded or empty is sitting there in that process and get, and listen, it happens twice, not once. It's on the trip going to, it's on the trip coming back. Uh, and if you're the, the company that owns those assets, which I would suggest um, looking at our profile, the railroads own maybe half the cars, less than half, the shippers yeah. own the balance. Uh, so if you've got, you know, simple terms, a hundred cars that are in a cycle delivering your product to your customer or securing your supplies to produce your product, uh, and you can take two days or three days out of that cycle time, that's a 20 or 30% car cycle savings, which means in ultimately if you can, if, and that's the key, you have to be truck-like dependable. If you as the transportation decision maker can say, I can depend on this railroad uh, because they're not going to be pointing fingers, CPKC, I hold you accountable. And if you don't deliver, somebody else gets your business, then you get a product offering that's reliable enough. You can say, hey, I don't need to own 100 of those. I need to own 70 of those. And guess what? Those cost $100,000 to $150,000 a piece in, in a particular car, like a tank car. Uh, that's truly what selling service is about. And that's truly what an inner, an inner line move eliminated to a single line uh, creates. It's just simplifies the network. And, and I'll put this in another term. It's, it's kind of like flying in the U.S. If you get on a plane in Boston and you're going to L.A., uh, what's the service experience like on a one-way trip versus flying to Chicago in the middle of winter and having to connect? You, you just, it's like the plague. You want to avoid it. And I'm not against Chicago. I'm from Chicago. I'm just saying the reality is whenever you introduce complexity, there's an opportunity for things to go bad. Uh, or things to not be ideal. And that's kind of the way the railroad works too. If you force an interchange, you got to deal with two different companies. You've got two different sets of operating capacities, two different sets of potential outcomes. And often it's not the optimal outcome. Uh, so that's truly what single line service allows. Um, a better service experience, more reliability. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, if you're the shipper that uses it and enjoys it, I think it gives you market advantage against the competitive your competitor that perhaps doesn't. Well, I like that analogy, especially given the fact that I had to get here last night and connect through Atlanta. And so I ended up getting it at 3 a.m. So yes, I fully appreciate that. Um, uh, another question here, uh, this is an end-to-end -end merger and you have done a terrific job addressing customer issues with um, complete access and CPR has already addressed. Uh, what specifically is holding up this transaction and how are discussions with the union going? You know what? Um, let me start with the union. Um, this deal, and I, it's 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 so refreshing to be able to to promote, suggest, and support a transaction that's all about growth. You know, and when it comes to discussions with unions, number one, you got to treat them, treat people right. And I, I think at CP, 
Uh, we have focused on, we're not a perfect company. We've obviously driven a lot of change, but over the last four to five years, we've never, in my railroad experience, been in a better place with better morale, with better employee labor relations. Uh, that approach, that reality allowed us when we went into this transaction to, to uniquely secure support from the largest rail union in North America. Uh, for SMART to come out and support us, to support this transaction, because of the jobs that this creates, the growth that it creates, knowing the way that we treat our employees, knowing the way they can expect to be treated with respect and appreciation and be part of our transportation solutions, I, I think that's very exciting, very compelling. Uh, so we're, we're in the process of our implementing discussions. Obviously, that's part of the merger application and the approval process. They're going well. Uh, I think that uh, those will be satisfied. And then the balance of the process itself, uh, when it comes to what takes so long, uh, number one, it's a very thorough process. And number two, I don't think it's a secret. Um, there's other than the shippers concerns and, you know, there's an undeniable bad history of transactions and, and combinations in the past. And as an operating guy, again, I lived through those. I lived through SVU, UP as a train master. I lived through the meltdown. I lived through the Conrail carve up working in the Northeast uh, with CSX and with NS. Um, so I've seen it go bad. And I've also experienced as an operating officer, it go well through the Canadian Nationals expansions when I happen to be on that team uh, through the IC transaction as well as the WC transaction, um, you know, from a service standpoint. And again, it's, it did not, has not gone perfect. Nothing ever is, but we didn't have the meltdowns, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I can tell you now we're being intentional to make sure we provide a reliable transition is here as well. Uh, but with that said, the other thing that's taken the time is the people that are against this. And the people that are against this, quite frankly, um, no surprise to others, are the people that are going to have to compete against it. So the railroads, they all have their own unique concerns, their own unique um, thoughts. Uh, some have weighed in more heavily than others. The SDB obviously has the same responsibility to the other railroads as they do to us or to the industry. And that's to make sure that those concerns are heard or worked through or vetted out the ones that are reasonable and fair or addressed the ones that are not, you know, the process I think addresses that as well. So that's going to take time, uh, hearings, a lot of lawyers involved, a lot of discussion, uh, much like this process we're going through now, this policy is being taken to understand this data. You know, this hasn't been done in 20 years. I believe this is going to be the last class one combination in our lifetimes, perhaps ever. Uh, and the STB is going to take the time to get it right. Um, so again, I'm not concerned. I think it's appropriate. Uh, I know our facts support this transaction. Um, and knowing that and knowing and seeing the way the STB has ruled all along the way, protecting the customer's interest, protecting the public's interest, as long as you represent facts that actually support that narrative and don't destroy that narrative, I think you're in a good place. And we do. Um, so we're going to stay committed to this. We're going to have patience and we're going to get this thing together as quickly as we can, because I do believe much like the person that asked that question, there's so much, so much to benefit all the stakeholders here. Uh, once we get the combination put together, because even if you don't use this railroad, Jason, we all know this, the other railroads, they're going to have to get better at their game. They're going to have to compete against a single line railroad connecting markets that in the past, um, 
they access through a switch. They access through an interchange carrier. Uh, that's a pretty compelling service experience. And I go back to your experience in Atlanta. If you didn't have to fly through Atlanta last night uh, and you could have got straight home, uh, you probably, even if it would have been slow, flying a little bit slower and maybe it had to go a few hundred more miles, uh, if it got you there and you know when you got on, you were getting off and you could be at your meeting this morning with a little bit more sleep, you probably would have taken that option. Uh, so we'll get there. I'm, I'm as eager as you are uh, to get this thing put together, but we've got to do it the right way in the right ways through this SDB process. Well, I think that's a, a good segue into the next question we have here. How do you explain the discrepancy in the synergy numbers between CP Casey's initial application and some of the other railroad commentary? Um, well, let me, let me just speak to CP's, the difference in our synergy numbers. Uh, the synergies, you know, we had a, a low case, a conservative case because we're conservative in nature, and a higher case. Uh, and we didn't know what we didn't know. We knew we spent a lot of time, unlike another railroad that, that I'm not gonna say their name that joined in the fray here. Uh, we had, I'd say six, seven, eight months of, you know, sitting in meetings, looking at what can we do standalone? What, you know, what can we not do standalone? What are the market opportunities? We mm -hmm. went through every business unit you know, what customer solutions are there? Um, I'm telling you, we went through a lot of diligence to get to a place where I felt comfortable that these were just perceived opportunities. These were real. And it doesn't mean you got to go out. You, you got to go out and invest. You got to do what we're doing with our plan to, to create the service experience and the asset turns to win the business um, and to earn the business. But at the end of the day, uh, it was extremely compelling. And what we came forward with, again, because of our conservative nature, was the mid-case. Now, what happened, which was uniquely uh, part of our experience, and I, and I knew this because we've gone through the same thing with a CMQ transaction in the purchase. You don't know what you don't know. And when you start talking to customers, um, not just between each other, about what we see as a vision and what we see as an opportunity, and they start to tell you, you know what, yes, if you thought about this, if you thought about that, and they're matched with that same enthusiasm because they know the markets they've not been able to get to. They know their own service experience and the pluses and the minuses when it comes to interchange with an, another character, another character, another uh, carrier. They also know that if the right solution is there, how they can win in the marketplace. Um, so if you present a footprint, a network that allows that to create, and you have, again, the trust and credibility uh, to make that commitment, that's compelling. Um, so those synergies that we thought were conservative were very, very conservative when it comes to the, to the revenue side. And I would suggest even today as, as we've gotten into this, you know, we learned that the first 30 days we were together in those meetings, Jason, until we broke up, you know, until KCS said, you know what, CN's put a better offer on the table, we're gonna, we're gonna go CN's way. Um, there was a lot of disappointment in our customers when that happened. Uh, you can see it from the submissions. You can see it not, and I would say the quantum of submissions that were made in support of, of CN, KCS's transaction, because they're a bigger railroad. They had a lot of submissions. I look more to the people against. How many letters against were in our submission versus how many letters of against were in CN's? And there is a compelling difference. 
And that's the voice of the shipper that's going to lose out that opportunity they were so excited about. Uh, so when we came back together, we looked at all this. We said, listen, we know this now. We didn't know that then. We know this. We know this. There's more automotive opportunity, intermodal opportunity, uh, this grain opportunity, taking what we do in Canada, bringing it to the U.S. network. We knew there would be interest, but there's not just interest. There's people that literally are in Mexico buying land today in anticipation and hope this transaction gets approved so that we can create that light supply chain, that 8,500 foot model that allows us to move 40% more grain with the same crew, the same locomotives. There's synergy in it for the customer and capacity and cost. There's, there's market share gains if you've got the reliable service. All those things that are true allowed us to a point that what we came back with was I think modest change, which said that our higher case from the start was actually a very conservative case. Um, the others that are looking at it, uh, quite frankly, I just chalk it up to this. It's a concern about competition. Uh, they don't understand the data the way we understand the data. They don't understand how to do business the way we do. Uh, I don't think there's any other railroad that has been able to have the kind of success that we have had over the last four to five years. Again, back to my supply chain solution, taking those land acquisitions or land assets and converting them into solutions for customers. Uh, we just do things differently at CP. Uh, and we think at a larger scale with KCS, as long as we maintain our humility, our innovative entrepreneurial uh, drive, we're hungry for business, we remain hungry, we remain humble, we work closely with our customers, uh, that's going to get to a place where as much as some of the naysayers may not agree with our synergies, um, I, I guess they'll just have to say they got it wrong because there's no doubt in my mind, I've been doing this quite some time, um, the conservative nature still there, but there's there's an opportunity to exceed synergies on revenue. There's an opportunity to exceed synergies when it comes to cost. Once we get these two networks put together, we're all become better railroaders every day um, and grow, grow the network, grow with our customers. Um, and I think uh, at the end of the day, be guilty of one thing and that's way underestimating the, the synergies that this transaction is going to enable. Well, Keith, clearly, um... Uh, they're uh, your customers that are excited about this transaction. And I know that their investors are excited about this transaction. So uh, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I promise to uh, let you go at uh, 10 before the hour. It is 10 before the hour. I apologize uh, to the questions that we have in queue, but uh, uh, Keith has to uh, get going again on behalf of the board of directors of Nears. Keith, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, it's been great having this fireside chat with you virtually. And I look forward to uh, seeing you in the near future. Hey, always my honor. And, and listen, Jason, I'm, I'm committed to this industry for, for the foreseeable future. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. And I look forward to interacting with all the customers uh, as well as you and participating with this industry. It's a wonderful industry, not a perfect industry, obviously, uh, but we're a company that's committed to making it better every day. And I want to thank our customers for trusting us enough to giving us an opportunity to earn the honor of moving your freight. And we, we hope that business opportunity, that partnership, uh, that committed success to each other only grows in the future. So everyone stay safe, take care of yourselves, and I look forward to seeing you out on the rail. Be well, Keith. All the best.